Good morning. We have been working our way through 1 Peter. We have seen some great theology in the first chapter and a half that we have investigated. And now we are into the second phase of Peter's uh, material here in this book, in his first of two epistles. Uh, epistles just a letter. Uh, and we find him now moving on to relationships. We've talked several weeks ago about relationship within ourselves and that battle that is there between uh, the flesh and the spirit, between that part of that we want to serve God and that, that part that wants to serve ourselves and this world's interests, that we engage ourselves in that relationship as a priority, that we talked about our relationship with the world, of being uh, honorable and having our conduct among them to be such that directs their attention to God. That when they see us, they see our activity out there, they say, what is different about you? And that that should be the hallmark of our, of our relationship to the world. We have now moved into last week and this week, and we'll take next week as well, to look into another uh, relationship. That is between us and our government. Uh, not necessarily does that mean that it is unbelievers, although in our, in our understanding of government is certainly outside the purview of the church, that has not always historically been the case. Uh, there has been uh, many times throughout history, in fact, I would contend most times throughout history, that the church of some sort or another, whether it be uh, of religion, we'll say religion of some sort or another, is, is the provider of the government for a people. And so if you go into Islamic countries right now, the connection between their religion and their government is extraordinarily strong. So much so they get their very law from their religion. And that's, you know, I say, well, that's out, Sharia law, that's outrageous. Well, it's not really outrageous because our country has gotten most of its laws originally from the scriptures as well. So there was a strong tie historically uh, that we looked into that. In fact, one of our states, the state of Pennsylvania, when it was founded by William Penn, hence Pennsylvania, uh, set out its state constitution. It says the constitution of the state is the Bible. That was, that was it. That was the entire law of the state of Pennsylvania when it was founded. It was, if the Bible says it, you have to do it. That's it. Uh, I don't know how that affects their driving habits. They didn't have cars back then. Okay, they just, well, they had carts, uh, but that was it. That was their whole constitution. It's the Bible. And so we come to understanding that there is a strong connection in our country to uh, establishing laws based upon a religion. And so when you go into countries like India and you go into other, other countries where there are Alternate religions are the dominant ones, whether it be Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Shintoism. If you go into Japan, you go into the, and you see the religious foundation of laws. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But uh, we have come to a time now where we find that movement in the last uh, hundred years at least, a certain, possibly before that, but certainly in the last hundred years, um, 150 uh, a movement that really has been led by this country to divorce those two, to try to bring a wedge between what people to believe and the governments that guide them. So our relationship with government has really transformed in the last hundred years, different than all other generations past. And this is going to uh, culminate in something that Revelation tells us is going to happen, 
uh, the book of Revelation tells us that at some point the nations are going to reject religions entirely. And we have seen that movement happening in your lifetime. And now one of the great things that we hear talked about is the separation of church and state. We don't have any good, we don't have good knowledge and information upon the foundation of that statement and what it really meant at the time it was said. It is like all language has moved. It's dynamic and now it means that that the church can't have anything to do with the state uh, instead of what it originally meant was the state can't have anything to do with the church. But now we've reversed those in our concepts that we can't have any concept of, of our religious beliefs in the public sector. And so we see that movement, but God told us that that's the way it would be and become. So our relationship with government is not static. It doesn't stay the same over time. And certainly we can see that our relationship with government has changed radically, uh, where we have, uh, as we engage with governments and move farther and farther away from the concepts and principles of God's word, now we have some difficult choices. But those choices aren't new. Because governments haven't moved away from Christianity just in your lifetime. It has happened in various places in various times. And in fact, most of our New Testament writers all had to deal with governments that, that saw them as not worth being on the, in their country. And we certainly saw an example uh, both in the Persians, the Medes and Persians and Esther last week, we're going to be looking a little bit closer at Daniel this week and some of the other prophets. We see a relationship between Israel and her government uh, that even then there were sometimes evil kings that did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. Well, how do we relate with them? And that's very different than how we relate to a king like Josiah who wants to have all these reforms. How do we relate to that? And so relationship with government is not always antagonistic is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes uh, we should be cooperating and encouraging. And, and we don't want to be out of balance here say, well, we, anything the government does, I'm against. Nor should we say, well, anything the government does, I have to uh, uh, acknowledge and agree with. And so uh, we see that throughout history you have um, that transitional uh, requirement that we have to examine government and then respond to what is going on there. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at the prophets. Because the prophets' primary responsibility was on a national level. And so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it wasn't, I mean, this is what got John the Baptist beheaded. It was not his engagement with the people saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That didn't get him beheaded. So we're talking about life and death here. Uh, when the prophets are engaged, usually they got into trouble because of what they were dealing with the leaders of their country and saying, that is sin. You have sinned. This is what got John the Baptist in hot water because he said, that's sin. And he said it to the king. And he said it to the governors. He wasn't afraid to say that, to engage them. Does that mean he was dishonoring them? No, but we recognize that that is where it really comes to bear is the prophet's responsibility was to engage the national leaders, whether they be kings, pharaohs, Caesars, governors, whoever they were, and even religious leadership, they were to engage them. We find Jesus doing similarly, don't we? 
We find him engaging the religious leadership of Israel, calling them whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he had almost nothing good to say about these people. He called them the blind leading the blind. Uh, he called them a brood of vipers. Uh, I mean, those are strong terms. And then he goes into their workplace, <laughs> which happens to be his father's house, and he disrupts the whole place, throwing over money-changing tables and, and making a, skirt, a whip and driving them out of his father's house, their workplace. And so we find this engagement to be one that is that, that the prophets, from uh, all the prophets were engaged in from uh, Noah all the way through to engage the leadership of, peop- of the nations with the truth of God's word. And so we want to just glean a little bit. We're not going to nearly delve into it far enough in just three weeks to see how they engaged them. But I just want to share with you that we're not always negative in this thing, even though it might sound like it a little bit. I recognize that when governments do what their job is to do, we should not only cooperate, but encourage it and applaud it and incite uh, obedience to it. And this is what Peter and and Jesus and Paul, James, all seek to move us, John as well, all seek to move us towards. So we're in First Peter chapter 2, and again, let me read this. We're going to be focusing in on one verse, uh, verse 14, but let's read 13 through 17 again. It says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we come, we, we've talked last week about, our, about the necessity of recognizing that there is an authority above government. It is not the ultimate authority. We, I know it talks about it here as saying, and it uses the word supreme, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. This is in terms of earthly government, earthly authority, but we recognize there is a divine heavenly authority behind those earthly authorities. And when an earthly authority, even a king as supreme, with divine right to rule... He carries divine right to rule, even when he does it poorly, even in a manner that is, that is distasteful to God, that God just wants to destroy him. Yet as he reigns, we have a responsibility there to honor him. But that honor does not always necessitate complete obedience, nor certainly agreement. And one of the strongest examples of this in God's word is a king of Israel that for his crimes against not only the people uh, and particularly against the innocent of the people is what the prophets keep talking about, how you have maltreated the innocent ones. And the innocent ones, in God's word, are not just the unborn. It certainly talks about ripping women's abdomens open, taking their children out, uh, but also burning their children alive on the altar of Moloch, as a sacrifice. It is about maltreatment also of not only children, but the fatherless of whatever age, of widows, of the, of the poor that are dependent upon that of the disabled, that when we maltreat those, this king did all of that. He not only did all these sins against the people, but he also did 
heinous things against God. He took uh, profane images and brought them into the temple of God region, the courtyards. He, he changed the, he wouldn't allow anyone to use the name of God in his kingdom. They could not use the word El, Elohim, El Shaddai, any of those, and replace them with the gods, the false names of the gods of the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And that king was King Manasseh. Not of Israel, but of Judah. The righteous nation compared to her northern cousins uh, in Israel that had already been carried away, that were going to be carried away captive earlier. And yet we find that Manasseh didn't just reign for a few months and did this. He reigned for decades doing this. And that God seemingly didn't even judge during his day. There was actually a hundred years between what Manasseh did and God finally judging Judah. But when the judgment came, the prophet said, here's why you're going to go into it. And they kept going back to Manasseh. They kept going to that king. We're going to keep going to that king. What he did, Josiah tried to undo it, but you just snapped back to what he did. And they kept going back. And this is a, I find this is a very consistent principle throughout God's word, even going back to Noah, uh, that God, from the time that he sees an act that needs to be judged to the time that he actually exerts that judgment is frequently a hundred years. Right around there. I'm not going to say exactly 100 years. But it's right around that time. How long did it take Noah to build the ark between when God says, I'm going to destroy mankind and the flood comes and he actually destroys mankind? 100 years. How long between Manasseh and the destruction of Judah? 100 years. And we can see this kind of thing going on throughout. And we see that God is, has a different kind of timetable. We think, well, Manasseh should have been judged for Manasseh's sin. But the government was there, and the people had to live under that. Now, did some maintain themselves? Yes. There's always been a remnant, and that's a very important word in biblical study. And the call is for us to be the remnant. That is the little piece that stays true to God. Now, in the days before the flood, that remnant was down to one guy. One guy in the entire population of the earth, one man was the remnant. And God saved him and his family. There's no evidence that his family was part of the remnant other than the fact that they, the three sons uh, worked with their dad for 100 years building the ark. And, and my son is starting to think that's how long it's going to take for us to build the lodge at the Bahamas. And... and <laughs> It's going to take 100 years to do this because it's taken 20 and we're not. No. Uh, they were willing to work with them and be obedient to them, never seeing rain the entire time, but saying, well, God showed our dad this. So there's some evidence there, but really at the time when God selected, he says there's only one man on the earth. That's the remnant. Elijah thought during his time that it was down to one man again. He says, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, it's you and I got like 7,000 others. I got a few thousand others tucked away that have not bent the knee to the Canaanite gods that haven't gone into idolatry who are standing for the truth. We want to be among that number. 
We want to be part of that remnant that can balance this, understand that when a government goes bad, we stand for truth, and it is not our job to punish that government. It is God's job, and he does it in his time. And his timing is perfect. And his, the means that he uses to do that um, are just, and they are right. And we look at the northern tribes of Israel, and we look at, the, at, at Jezebel and Ahab, and we look at that time, and we say, how did God tolerate that? And then, but then there came an end. And he raised up a guy named Jehu to do horrific things that you guys would all shudder at. And yet God says, well done. You judge the house of Ahab. Because they were doing injury not, to, not only to the people, but to the authority of God that he had invested in them. And so government ultimately is answerable to God, not to the people. And this is an upside down for our understanding of government, because we think government is answerable to us, just as we believe we choose the leaders. We also believe the leaders are, are, are accountable to us. And that's the opposite of God's word, where God chooses the leaders, and now the leaders are accountable to, the him, to him. They are accountable to God, and God will judge them according to his wisdom and his power. And frankly, he is a lot more capable of judging governments than you and I. So what is our responsibility? Well, let's talk about what government is there for. What does it mean by a government going bad? Uh, and I already last week said it's not about taxes. It's not about uh, uh, taking your sons for the military and your daughters for the harem. It's not about any of that. Uh, that's their right. They have a divine right to those things, to come in and take the best of your flocks, best of your lands, and give them to their servants. That's what Samuel told Israel. That's what a king's allowed to do. And so we're not talking about taxation without representation. That's not what we're talking about. What is it that defines whether a government is doing right or wrong before God? And I've tried to illustrate this through these other kings, but we have it given to us here in 1 Peter and in Romans chapter 13. Let's look at it here in 1 Peter. Let's remind ourselves what we just read. Verse 14, uh, and, or to governors, let's, as to those who are sent by him, that's the governor, for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do good. This is essentially the purpose God has for government. Prior to the flood, there was no government. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And after the flood, we have one world government. That ended at the Tower of Babel. And God says, hey, these people can do anything. If they have one government over them, they have one language, they're one people, they can do anything they set their minds to, and it will always be against me. They'll follow after Satan, their father, instead of God, their true heavenly father. And so God confounded the languages of Babel, and, and hence we have the term Babel meaning that I don't understand what you're saying. You're babbling at me. Uh, and so we have this division. We start seeing governments coming to, to bear. Why? Well, the governments produce laws, and those laws were not to punish good people. They were there to punish evil people. And that is fundamentally, it is a means to keep in check the evil of men's hearts. And we all know what happens once you remove that, that constraining element of government. We have seen it in the last year, haven't we? 
What happens if a people thinks they don't have to listen to the government? We saw it up in our nation in several cities where they set up their own little camp and they said, we're a free zone. But what happened in that free zone? Was it a law-abiding, utopic place? No, it was horrible. Because men just did what was right in their own eyes. And that will always end, not just into chaos and disorder, but into violence. And so we understand that really, if it's a good government, its number one job isn't really infrastructure. Its number one job is to keep evil people from being as evil as they want to be. And to encourage people, even the evil people, to do good things. To try to be as good a person as you can be. That's really what government is for. And that's not me saying it. This is the Bible saying it. It's the, to punish the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. Let's go to, Rev, to I keep saying Revelation, Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. This is the other passage all the people have been using for this last year, saying we should obey the government and everything, and if they say to not that we can't meet together as a church, we should obey it. We've handled that in the past. We're going to have to address it a little bit more probably in the future to remind ourselves of this. Romans 13, beginning verse 1, says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Sound familiar? Paul and Peter agree. Imagine. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And by this resisting, he really means to disobey and do evil. That's what is stipulated by Peter as well that you don't use your relation with God to be an excuse for doing evil. That's also in the book of Galatians and other places. Here we go, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So, what is the purpose of government in God's plan? Is to judge evildoers. That is justice. That is the purpose of government. Number one purpose of government is to, to, to punish those who do evil. The number one purpose of government, from God's perspective, is to stop evil, encourage good. Now, what happens when we enter into a society, and the Bible says in the end times, men will call good evil and evil good? Now we have a problem, don't we? Because now, once we have in our minds and as a society switched these two, now we have government promoting what? Evil that they call good, and they are against good by calling it evil. And we are seeing this happen in our day. You are seeing it happen in your lifetime, in this decade. And the decade isn't very old. How old is this decade? No. This decade is four months old. 
This decade is four months old. And in just the last four months, we have seen this. You're thinking now, you're going, what? There was no year zero, so the decade started in 2021. Okay? You are seeing this happen. That our government is condemning good as evil and condoning evil as good. Now, this is the reverse. This is, God has warned us about this. And so do we then conform ourselves to a government gone bad? No, we respond as the remnant of Israel. We respond as the remnant that says, I will, I will keep doing good as God defines what is good. And so I go to God's word and I say, what does it say I should be doing? And I'm going to keep doing that good. Now, as I keep doing that good and the world changes and reverses good and evil because the Bible says that's what will happen in the end times. Now, I am, find myself in a relationship with government where I want to honor them, but they don't want to honor their job. Their number one job is to get rid of evil and to encourage good. And so now I have, I'm in a condition like the Remnant of Israel under the evil kings of Judah and of Israel, like Esther in the time of Artaxerxes, like Daniel and, and uh, Hananiah and Azariah and, and Mishael under the Babylonian king. We have a decision to make. You want to call me doing good evil. I'm going to keep doing good because God says it's good. And so let's go to Daniel. And it wasn't only under the Babylonian king. Of course, he also served. Remember, please, that these guys were serving their king. He wasn't an Israelite. He's the one that destroyed Jerusalem. And they served in his government. So I'm not saying we're not going to do that. But let's go to Daniel. They served in his government. And uh, they serve faithfully as much as they could, but remember, the government can go bad. They can start getting things confused. And this happened under Nebuchadnezzar. It happened under his son Belteshazzar. And uh, he, not Belteshazzar, Belshazzar. Belteshazzar was, was Daniel's Babylonian name. Sorry about that. Belshazzar. And, uh, and he's profaning it. And, and still, Daniel comes in and serves the king. The king calls him in and says, what is this writing on the wall? And Daniel tells him. And the guy says, oh, great, we're going to give you all this. He says, well, you can give it to me, but it doesn't mean anything, because that night he lost his whole kingdom. That very night. In agreement with what was on the wall, because he didn't repent, having heard the truth. His countenance changed. Daniel served him. He was a prophet that served the king, but God judged him. And that judgment came. Well, of course, the Medes and the Persians came in and took over the Babylonian Empire. Daniel's still there, and he is set up in another position of government within the Mede, King Darius. And you guys know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. You say, Pastor, you're finally getting there. I'm getting there. I'm just trying to warm you guys up to it a little bit. And so here we are. Daniel's been faithfully serving, and his government, whether they are Obeying God or not obeying God, he still serves him, but he never stops obeying God himself. He's always part of the remnant. 
That means sometimes you get thrown into a fiery furnace. It means sometimes you have to uh, just stand up and say, I can't do that. I can't do that because it's not good. One of those occasions happened with the Persians. And so well, let's go to Daniel chapter 6. Um, and I want you to see uh, what happened in verse 3. We'll pick up verse 3. This, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Kind of like Joseph under Pharaoh. I must put you in charge of everything. You just decide everything. I can just enjoy being king. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him. In every part of his responsibilities, he fulfilled them and served and honored King Darius. He did everything that he was, could do. Every, he followed all the laws. He did all the paperwork. He did everything in the most excellent fashion. He obeyed the king. And as long as there was no conflict between uh, him obeying the king and him obeying God... Um, there was no fault found in him. And the satraps and governors knew that, and they said, well, the only way we're going to get him is if we can create a new law that makes him doing good evil. Sound familiar? So they do what everyone does. You go to the king, and you butter him up. Watch it. So the governor and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever! All the governors of the kingdom lie. The administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which it does not alter. And the governor and the king is just, oh, well, this is wonderful. Everybody wants... Now, first of all, if he were a wise king, he would realize, I don't want everyone coming and asking me stuff for 30 days. Can you imagine everyone coming? I can't ask my dad, so can I ask you, can I go out tonight? Because for the next 30 days, I can't ask anybody, anything of anybody except for you. That's the foolishness. But Darius was, wasn't wise enough to see through this and say, well, I don't want 30 days of my life that everybody has to line up here and ask me stuff. Kind of like, think of Moses, you know, where his father-in-law says, this isn't going to be healthy for you. you uh, there's a purpose you have these other guys below you. But Darius, oh, this is wonderful. Look at how highly they think of me. Of course, they lied because there was one they left out of this equation, for sure, and that was Daniel. And so he signs the decree into writing. He says, sir, if you guys all agree that, that I'm that special, I'm, I'm even equal to God and, and higher than any man for 30 days, uh, and that's all it would take. Now, this is really important. Here is the government saying, I want you to suspend your religious activity for 30 days. What does that sound like? You have lived that in the last year. The government comes, says you will suspend your religious activity for 30 days. 
Well, I mean, we can, I guess for 30 days, we can do that. How much harm can it do for 30 days? Interestingly, the 30 days becomes 300 days, and 300 days becomes permanent. That's what kind of harm it can do. 30 days, just 30 days to spend all religious praying. 30 days. That's it. And now, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. <laughs> That's not all he did. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward heaven, or toward Jerusalem, sorry, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. You think anyone knew he was doing this? It was what he did every day. He simply said, I'm going to go home, I'm going to do exactly what I've always done because it was right, because it is good, because it is what God desires. And three times I go every day and I pray facing Jerusalem, and, and, which would have been kind of southwest uh, for him, in there in Babylon, and so he's praying, facing Jerusalem, but I want you to notice that he prayed and gave thanks. Now, is that the kind of praying you're going to do when the government has told you for 30 days to spend all religious activity and you're there doing religious activity in defiance of the law? You see, the law's purpose is to control evil, not to elevate men. It's not there to stroke the king, make him feel powerful and full of himself. No, the purpose of government and the purpose of the law is to contain evil to some degree, to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. Here comes these men who have one purpose in establishing this, and that is to try to destroy one godly man. They didn't need it very long. They didn't need to extend it. Um, it was going to show. And so Daniel goes up there and he thanks. He prays with thanksgiving to God. He's giving thanks to God. Here he is in disobedience and defiance of this new law. And what is he thanking God for? Well, you know the outcome of the story. Daniel didn't know. Daniel didn't know how this ended, right? But he was going to thank God. I thank you, Lord for this opportunity to stand up for you, is what I would contend. That would be my prayer. That was my prayer. I thank you, Lord. Now we're going to find out who's the real deal and who's not. It's kind of like when he, you know, Nebuchadnezzar built that thing and says, everybody bow down to you, and there's three guys standing out there. Ain't going to do it. Thank the Lord. I get a chance to show a difference. We get to find out who's the real deal and who isn't. Very quickly. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to stand for good against evil. Even if that stance is one man against 119, is it? Because there's 120 satraps. 119 over there. One guy over here. The whole multitude in this whole huge courtyard, three guys out there not kneeling down. Thank you, Lord, for this chance to be a testimony. 
We talk about being salt and light. That pretty much expects you to be in a condition of uh, an environment of darkness. The darker the darkness, the brighter your light. If you don't dim it. If you don't shut it off for 30 days. And so Daniel says, I'm going to keep doing what I have been doing because it pleases God. It has been, it's even known by the satraps. They would only devise this law because they know how important this is to me and they know how committed I am to it. And therefore, I'm going to keep doing it. Thank you, Lord. I don't know how this is going to end up, but I'm going to keep serving you faithfully. Thank you, Lord. Have you been thankful this last year for opportunities to stand up and be different? That when everyone else is hiding and cowering and afraid, that you get to be joyful and unafraid, bold? Oh, the Christian community should just be the happiest people right now because now you have your chance to be different. I'm not, I don't need this. I don't, I'm not afraid of that. Are you afraid? And I remember talking to my insurance lady and when this first started out last year and she was like, oh, this is also, and she was praising the governor, praising everything and how important all this was. And, and I says, um, no, I said, I'm not swallowing any of this. She says, what's your rationale? I said, well, there are things more important than life to me. And in the history of our country, we have been taught that there are things worth dying for. But this generation doesn't know that. That there are things more important than life. And Daniel understood that there are things more important than life. And he knows the penalty. The penalty is the lion's den. It's written in the law. And he's getting there and he's praying, thank you, Lord. Um, Apparently I'm going to be lion food pretty soon, but I'm thanking you for a chance to stand up to honor you before the king. Now, he had a very close relationship with Darius. We're going to find that out in the story. But thank you, Lord. Oh, that we would be thankful. We should be a thankful, joyful, bold people. That when the world is running around, frayed, and, and you know I haven't used the word pandemic to refer to this. I've been using the word hysteria. As the world is in hysterics, we just calmly go about our business. I'm not going to scramble around. We did a few little things to satiate a few people, uh, mostly when we were engaging with the world. Um, so on Wednesday nights, because we have kids from the community, we took everyone's temperature to help them feel better. Um, and that was about the extent of it. Um, but you know that we weren't going to do that here uh, during our worship services. Uh, we're not going to buy the hysteria. We trust the Lord. We have every reason to keep fellowship, and we have every reason to trust in the Lord. And if any time is more opportunity to do that, it's now. We have the greatest opportunity uh, that we have had in our lifetime to be a testimony, be a light, because of the darkness of fear that has just gripped our world. Not just our nation, our world. And that's why we stand up, like Daniel, and say, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. God will take care of it. Verse 11, Then these men assembled, found Daniel praying, made supplication before his God. They went before the king, spoke concerning the king's decree, and... Uh, They reminded him that there's a law on the day, the 30 days, and uh, this guy over here did not suspend his praying for 30 days. Uh, It only took one. They could have made it just a week, couldn't have they? 
They could say, just for seven days. They would have still caught him. He would have still been guilty. He wasn't going to suspend his pattern of worship at all. Verse 13, so they answered and said before the king, that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah does not show due regard for you, O king, for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Notice that the, the accusation is he doesn't honor you. But the fact is the king knows that no one in the kingdom honors him more than Daniel. Because Daniel's been faithfully doing his job for his country, even though he isn't a citizen of that country, he is really from Judah. They remind him he's a captive of Judah. Oh, but he has been faithfully performing the duties assigned to him for the benefit of the kingdom. And it, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and now Darius didn't matter. It was the government that God put over him, he was going to serve that government. And here these men come and remind him he's an alien. He's not one of us. And he's not showing you proper regard. He's not honoring you. Both uh, are there to try to twist Darius' mind, but at this point, Darius is displeased with himself, it says in verse 14. The king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him, but he couldn't. He worked all day trying to prevent this, but he was reminded, hey, it's a law. You signed it, can't be changed. And so, verse 16, so the king gave the command. They brought Daniel, cast him into the lion's den. Do you see Daniel fighting it anywhere? But the king spoke, saying, Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then the stone was brought, laid in the mouth of Den. The king sealed his own signet ring with signet of the Lord's purpose, and the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And of course, you know that Daniel survived the night. And they come in the morning, and the first one down there in the morning is the king. Oh, are you, uh, is your God, whom you serve continually, notice that's what the king notices. You keep serving God no matter what. The God whom you serve continually, not just three times a day in prayer, in everything you do, you are really serving God while you're doing it. Has he been able to deliver you from the lions? And I love Daniel's response, O king, live forever. I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. O king, live forever. My God sent his angels, shut the lions' mouths. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent before God. And also, king, I have done no wrong before you. You see, when the, when the government makes good evil and evil good, and we persist in doing what is truly good, even then we should be prepared that the government is probably going to punish you. But your testimony is more valuable than that punishment because there are things more important than life. And for Daniel, three times a day, he needed to go pray because that was more important than his very life. And we find out what is really important to you. And so we are in a condition where we honor the king. And you will not find me 
uh, dishonoring. You haven't found me, I don't think, in, in all my messages, going all the way back, whether the president was one I agree with or disagree with, dishonoring them. Does that mean I agree with them? Does that mean I will uh, not stand against them when they call evil good and good evil? I will certainly take that stand. But I am also prepared uh, if someone comes in here and says, hey, you're breaking the governor's rules, you're going to jail. I say, okay, I'm going to jail. I agree. I, I'm breaking the law, but it's not because I'm dishonoring my governor. It's because I stand in the same pattern of life that I know pleases God that I had before. You switched the rules. Kind of amazing. In the last few weeks that we switched the rules again. Government can just change the rules at their own uh, pleasure. And somehow we're on this yo-yo. We have to keep living differently. And no, for the Christian, we just keep doing good. And if the government turns evil and punishes us for that, we accept that punishment. And the prophets have always had this. How did Jeremiah end up in the condition he was in? In a pit eating moldy bread, that's all they gave him, for speaking the truth to the king. That's what got him in that condition. Throw him in a pit. That's what got John the Baptist beheaded, as I said earlier. That's what had almost all, and when Jesus Christ comes and says, which of, the, which of the prophets have your fathers not killed or imprisoned? Why? Because they stood up to evil. And yet, in that standing up to evil, they were still wanting to honor the king. Their real purpose was, oh, king, please repent of calling good evil and evil good. And once or twice the kings did. A king called David repented of murdering one of his captains of his army to get his wife. He wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been a prophet that stood up in his midst and said, you are the man. And David broke down and wept. That's the goal. The goal isn't judgment. The goal is repentance. That we pray for those in authority over us, even as they have reversed and call evil good and good evil, we pray for their repentance. And the only way we can do that is by continually doing what is good. And it reminds them of their job. Darius was reminded, why was I so interested in, in myself and not thinking about what is right. He served his own interests and his own ego instead of serving his country with what is right. And it took one guy standing up to remind him of that same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. The same thing with Belshazzar. Two of these guys repented. Nebuchadnezzar repented. Darius repents. The guy in the middle didn't. Belshazzar was destroyed. He didn't repent. God gave him a chance. Oh, that we would stand up and be that remnant, that voice, that prophetic statement saying, this is what is right. And we're not trying to dishonor you. We're not trying to overthrow you. We're simply telling you, get it right. For your sake, for your eternal soul's sake, for the sake of this country, it is foolishness for a king to do injury to his own country because then he does injury to his own rule. And so we look at this and we say, I want to honor my government, but that, doesn't, but that requires me to keep doing good so they can be reminded. 
Oh, thankfully, we have an opportunity to remind the government that their job is to get rid of evil and to do good. And we have people running for government right now in this state who say, we're going to let all prisoners out of jail. We have a person running in this state right now, and that is their platform. And we are going to defund all police. Okay. I don't know how more clearly you can see someone saying, good is evil and evil is good. Will she become a, a, a person of authority in our state over my district? Probably. Because we deserve that. So, oh, we got to get out the vote. No, you got to pray. You see, the time when God intervenes and says, that's enough of that government, is when the people cry out to him. Not when the people get politically active. When we do what Daniel did, and we go to home, and we pray our hearts out. Not out of fear, out of thanksgiving. Lord, I'm going to stand. I'm going to do good. I'm going to keep doing right. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to be full of fear. I'm not going to do all this. I'm going to keep honoring the king. And that's what we see in example after example. Joseph, Esther, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. We look at these individuals, and even Moses, when he was raised in Pharaoh's household, that, um, uh, you know, and, and all of these things, we find that we honor, we can honor government and still stand in, in our righteousness, even when they call it evil, they know in their hearts, in their conscience, they know that to punish people for doing good is wrong. Now, here in the book of Daniel, we have Dan's lion's den and the fiery furnace. You say, well, there's deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. But each one of these testified, whether I get delivered or not, whether I die or not, that's what the three gentlemen said, um, you throw me in that lines, you throw me in that fiery furnace, even if we get destroyed, I want you to know, we mean you no harm. We're not rebelling against you, but we cannot do what you're asking us to do because we serve the living God. And that hasn't changed. Daniel comes out and says, I have met you, I am innocent. God has counted me innocent, and I've done you no harm. This is what Jesus said that we should be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We mean our country no harm. We mean our society no harm. But we are going to be wise. We're going to be wise enough to see that, well, if they're tracking cell phones to figure out where people are gathering, we're not going to bring cell phones to church. Leave them at home. They'll think you're all still at house, sleeping in. We'll be wise as serpents, but we're harmless. This is harmless. The, the thing is that they have convinced the world that we are the danger. Haven't they? These people want to harm us. That's what they've been telling us for the last year. This church. And churches like this that are meeting in this fashion, they want to harm us. They're going to cause super spreader events. We have no intention to harm anyone. We're going to just keep doing 
what God has called us to do. We are innocent of that charge. I've had actually Christians tell me, oh, you don't care about my life. You want to have this. No, that's hysteria. That is the world. That is not God's word. We are honoring the king. But remember, the purpose of the king, number one, is to punish evil. When that gets reversed, we don't reverse ourselves. We keep doing what's right with an expectation that the government may punish us for doing good. But let that be on their conscience and let us be right with God. Daniel says, I'm innocent. Did he break that law? Yes, but it was a bad law. And the king knew it. That's why the king tried to undo the law and he couldn't make it happen. Was the law for, to allow Haman to kill all the Jews a bad law? Yes. Esther stood up to it. Mordecai stood up to it. And the king was sorry. That's a bad law. What was I thinking? But he couldn't undo it. So he says, okay, I'll pass another law. You can all defend yourselves. That's a huge thing. I want you to notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego and Daniel didn't defend themselves because that wasn't a law. They took the punishment. In Esther, we find the king says, I'm going to give every Jewish person the right to defend themselves. There. That's written in the Medes and the Persians. Jews get to defend themselves. <laughs> Boy, you imagine how much ammo ran out of that country that fast. <laughs> All the gun stores got bought out. Right? Okay, it was bows and arrows, but all of them got, that's a law. Because without that, the Jews would have just had to walk up and be slaughtered. You don't think that happens? You should read about what happened to our King Saul. See, kill all the priests, because they're with David and not with me. And the priests got slaughtered by one man, all the priests, but one escaped. They didn't defend themselves, because it was the will of the king. The king is answerable to God, not me. I'm answerable to both the king and God. And so I'm going to stand for what's righteous and good and just, and I'm going to be thankful for the opportunity to stand out in a crowd. Or in this case, to be looked at through my window. They want to peek into my life and try to find fault? Let them do it. I want to stand for righteousness. I want to honor my government, because God has appointed, God is going to hold it accountable. I'm not going to hold it accountable. I'm going to keep doing good. What I know God is pleased with. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you again for this challenge today. And we see that it is our reality right now. We need your help. We need your help to be wise. We need your help to be bold. We need your help to stand fast in our faith. And, if, and that we do so um, knowing that our expectation is not for this world. It's for the one to come. Lord, we trust in you. We pray that you might help us to serve you better, to be brighter lights uh, not just because the world is getting darker around us, but because we strive more and more after righteousness for your sake, for your testimony of your kingdom. That when the nations are judged, you may 
that you can point to that light in that little place, that little church in Albuquerque, and say, you saw the light there, and you rejected it. But Lord, our prayer, first of all, is you might bring these to repentance. You might bring those in authority over us, whether it be in our homes, in our community, in our state, in our country, in the international community. You might bring them to repentance. Lord, humble them. Like you humble Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, humble them. They might see the end of their ways, our destruction, not just for a season, but forever. And Lord, that they might turn from their wickedness to you. And that we might be that reminder and that call. We might be willing to risk life itself for their deliverance. Like the prophets of old, that that might be our testimony. That we'll risk our jobs, our homes, our very lives to share the truth, not only in our words, but in our living to your honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name.